Hello, welcome to the Living Open podcast for mystics and seekers. I'm your host, Erin. I'm a Philly-based healing artist, and this is a podcast to support your healing journey. Hello, my friends. I am taking a break from eating these earth balance, vegan Cheez-Its, things that are so good (laughs) to bring you this episode with Sam of Shrimp Teeth. So Sam uses Shile pronouns and Shrimp Teeth is their platform. It's a queer, kinky, polyam platform that encourages folks to reclaim and explore their sexuality and relationships. Shrimp Teeth aims to provide accurate and accessible information for folks who are curious to learn about ethical non-monogamy, consensually alternative relationship structures, want to understand their sexuality through BDSM philosophies, or learn to write erotica which we know I love. (laughs) So in this episode, we talk about their journey with queerness and polyamory and kink, navigating fluidity and changing identities, different relationship structures and shifting between them, attachment and alternative relationship structures, communication in relationships, particularly poly relationships, working through shoulds and frustration with yourself for not fitting into the shoulds, shifting identities and how we feel about labels, getting into king, healing through king, dad things, and how they orient towards pleasure in their life. So I really enjoyed this conversation. I think you all know all this stuff has been super present for me, so it's really fun to talk with Sam over this summer. I'm also a member of their Patreon, and I definitely recommend checking that out. There's lots of good information and classes and erotica prompts, which is just the best. <laughs> and um, before we get into the conversation, I just wanted to drop two little reminders on you, which is... Breathwork for ex-religious and deconstructing folks is coming up on Zoom at the end of the month. It's an every other month breathwork class intended to support folks who've been impacted in some way by dogmatic religion on a journey of healing and reclaiming and returning to self. Along the same lines, the Religious Trauma Workbook that I wrote last year is available always. It's a 110-page digital workbook full of prompts, reflections, meditations, rituals, and somatic exercises to support your healing from dogmatic religion, to support the process of deprogramming and reclamation, um, which is so personal and different for everyone, so it's not like, here is a 10-step blueprint of how to heal, but it is intended to be a support and be a guide and be a prompt for your own intuition and your own healing and understanding things that are coming up for you. So links to both those things are in the description. Links to all Sam's things are in the description, including the things that they mentioned during this conversation. Um, So you can check those out. And also thank you for your patience in this episode coming out late, in the schedule just being like kind of wonky. I think I've just really reprioritized my life and softened a bit around what things matter and what things don't and the podcast deeply matters to me i love producing it for you i love sharing these conversations with you um but the podcast coming out every single monday morning is not a priority so hence you're getting this episode on tuesday and there's probably going to be a bit more fluidity in the structure 
continuing to move forward. Um, but I love sharing this show with you. So thank you. Thank you for being here and, um, enjoy this conversation and I'll see you next time. I love to start the podcast by hearing about your journey. So I'd love to hear about your journey with queerness and kink and being poly. And that's a huge question, but whatever you feel like sharing about how you got here, I'd love to hear. (laughs) Okay, um, so you're right. It is kind of a <laughs> long rambling story, so I'll try to condense it. We love oh. a long rambling story, so <laughs> just know that. <laughs> um, so my coming out was pretty nonlinear. Um, I think I started realizing, like, okay, probably I'm not attracted to cis men. Um, when I was like freshman in college I started you know like hooking up with girls there was like very much that Katy Perry kind of mentality of like who's gonna do this it was a little like you know typical college age like performative sexuality kind of situation um but I did have a cis male partner at the time that was long distance so um following pretty much uh, like trying to come out to my family it just didn't go over super well so I went back into the closet for quite a few years and was like "Ah, we'll just tuck that um back in there and not necessarily talk about it publicly uh what ended up happening though is that a few years later, this male partner and I um, moved in together. We were had been living together on and off for a few years, but try to give like monogamy a go for the first time because pretty much throughout our um, long distance relationship, we'd been in sort of like a don't ask, don't tell. So we were seeing other people, knew we were seeing other people, didn't really discuss it a whole lot. Um, so we try to close up our relationship. And that's when I had that realization of like, uh, uh-uh, this is actually not working for me. Mm-hmm. Um, like I just had a really hard time. So I'm a sexual violence survivor. So just getting over that experience and then also how that played into my queerness and just the discovery of like, oh, actually I'm not sexually or romantically attracted to this person even beyond, you know, trauma recovery. Um, And so that's where I got into a lot more like kink practices too of recognizing like, okay, well, if I don't like traditional like, what we consider P and V sex, right? What are other ways for us to connect intimately? So we started developing some of that awareness together. And then finally, when we ended up moving in and buying a house, it just got to a point where I was like, you know what? I'm actually like queer and um, let's go ahead and make this relationship more platonic. We still considered each other to be nesting partners. And so we lived together for a few years, but we're dating separately and had other like primary sexual and romantic partners. And then as a result of the pandemic, we just pretty much went our separate ways and both moved in with our primary partners. So there's been like a pretty big road of like changing relationships. But yeah, it's been interesting to see the intersection that I've had with this one person who, you know, people always assumed like we were legally married because I needed health insurance and to buy the house. So everyone called him my husband. But at the same time, we had a very non-traditional relationship. Um, So yeah, that's kind of my backstory. (laughs) Yeah, thank you for sharing that. I think I'm so curious and would love to hear more about unpacking like desire and attraction and figuring out 
what your actual like queer identity is and what that feels like or has felt like and maybe continues to feel like I feel like I'm still on that journey too (laughs) absolutely and this is always the really difficult thing to discuss as a queer person like I was just with some queer friends and their mom was asking like how did you know you were gay and my first instinct was to ask her like how do you know you're straight and sometimes we don't think about that so it can be really difficult to actually like put into words um the experience I had was like my cis male partner I find him super cute lovely adorable person but there's just not that attraction like I've always and it's funny because my parents also had have always said like oh you both are just like really good friends and that's Mm -hmm. always been sort of the tone that people had and at the time we weren't sure if it was just because like we started dating so young I think we were like 15 maybe when we started you know dating and it was really one of those situations where we were spending a lot of time together so people were just like ah you are boyfriend and girlfriend that was the language that people had for us and so for me to recognize like ah I don't have that desire like I don't want to sleep with this person took years because there wasn't even that framework it was almost like well there's not really a thing people are saying we're best friends but at the same time there's that expectation that we're together we don't see a whole lot of you know like cross gender I guess like platonic friendships in the media and so it was just hard to conceptualize like what does it even mean to be living with somebody who I'm married to in a platonic relationship even though that felt way more authentic and then the sad part is that for him he very much does feel that sexual attraction romantic attraction towards me so I think that was a point of conflict that we ended up having to work through more recently when we ended up just saying like okay like we need to really reach restructure our relationship I think there was a pretty big like heart break for him um, because the part that had never felt right for me did feel right for him and so it was like coming to terms in the fact that we did have different attractions and we did have different desires for how our relationship would evolve together does that make sense yeah that really makes sense and that sounds really hard and sad in a lot of ways yeah and I think this is where again like there's not a lot of good roadmaps <laughs> for how to navigate this. So a lot of it was us just trying different things out. Like we tried lots of different relationship structures, what it would look like for us to have more just like casual partners outside of our primary relationship, recognize that that was also putting a lot of strain and expectations on us. Um, and it was only like probably three years later that we were like, okay, yeah, we're going to split our time much more 50-50 where we're not expecting um, each other to be such primary partners, uh, which, you know, also leads to a different set of complications when we'd been living together, at least in each other's lives for over a decade. <laughs> yeah, totally. And I think it's so interesting that you already started out with kind of a different relationship structure with this person when you were really young. And did you like, did you grow up like seeing any of this? Did you grow up with religion? What? (laughs) How did you? I'm like, what is this question? I guess I just like think about how I did relationships when I was 
a lot younger and having my first relationships. And it literally never occurred to me that you could have a relationship in a different way. So it clearly occurred to you. (laughs) Yeah. And this is where it was pretty tricky because like I said, we didn't have the language of ethical non-monogamy. Polyamory was a word I had never heard of before. Like I kind of knew the word polygamy, which was always framed as a super bad thing. And I, I think... I don't know if I should say this, but I think polygamy tends to be a pretty bad thing for most people. Um, But anyway, and so um, a lot of the framework in which we were operating was very much like casual cheating, right? So like I was sleeping with and seeing different people pretty much throughout our relationship. Um, And that caused like certain levels of confusion and hurt feelings. I think it was more about the lying aspect of it. So when we moved into more of like a don't ask, don't tell structure, I think that was sort of the understanding is like, we're going to omit information, but we're not going to straight up lie to each other's face because we just didn't have the framework or I think the maturity to understand that we could talk about it. Um, I didn't know anything about how to set boundaries around that. So it was really, I wouldn't say that it was like intuitive or that we made a lot of those choices deliberately in the beginning. It was kind of like Mm -hmm. circumstantial. We were pushed into all of this kind of like messy multiple partner relationship structure. And it's only like way later past our mid-20s that we were like, oh, there is a way to do this in which we're being respectful of each other. We're, you know, considering everyone's feelings and we have the ability to support one another in those like jealousy feelings that do come up. Yeah. Yeah. I've been reading a lot of the writing you've been putting out on your Patreon recently on Patreon, check it out, everyone, um, about like changing relationship structures. And if you feel like sharing, do you want to talk about like maybe some of the different ways to like be poly and what your experience has been like of, oh, we're this thing and then we're moving into this thing and different relationship structures and how that feels? (laughs) Absolutely. Um, So the first thing is that I think each individual tends to have preferences and how they do want their relationship structures to be. I don't know if you're familiar with Eli Sheff is a researcher on non-monogamy, but recently um, they just put out something called the bonding project, which is a quiz. It'll tell you like how you relate to um, other people in your most like natural way, pretty much. Um, And some of those options are like one-on-one. So that would indicate that perhaps like a monogamous orientation might work best for you versus people who like to be connected like one to many folks, right? Might have more of a polyam type of structure versus people who really prefer connecting many to many, right? So then you might see like triads and quads and, you know, people who are all dating each other. Anyways, so there are just like a bunch of different types of structures that you can follow into and your personal preference is like one of those factors however since there's so many people involved you also have to take into consideration what their preferences are and so I find that for the most part people do evolve through different um, relationship structures especially outside of monogamy based on who they're seeing so I have currently like a 
what we call like poly intimate setup. So I have one sexually exclusive partner and then have other intimate partners. But within that group, I think we practice something that would look more like kitchen table polyamory where everybody is very comfortable around each other. The only distinction is that, like I said, because of coronavirus, because of this new relationship, I am sexually exclusive with one person, which is new for me. Um, <laughs> so there are definitely these changes that we have to go through um, to sort of like prioritize the wellness of the polycule and the the individual relationship so even if like I mentioned you know being sexually exclusive isn't something that I personally prefer right now the context and the global situation sort of pushed us into this relationship structure it might not stay the same forever I know my partner is open to discussing changes like she understands that that's probably not going to be a sustainable model for me forever. But then we have the opportunity of saying like, okay, well, so if we do change the sexual exclusivity, if we're, you know, redefining the boundaries and the agreements that we have around that, what would it look like? Are we dating individually? Are we dating together? Are we even dating? Or are we just, you know, going to play parties? There's so many different options and it's really hard to especially when you're opening up your relationship to know exactly what structure you're going to fall into because life happens and we kind of have to evolve our relationships accordingly does that answer it <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah um I think I just finished reading Polysecure so I'm curious if you have any thoughts about like yeah. how attachment plays into all of that for you too and it is funny because I love this book. I love that everyone's starting to read it and it's become such a helpful tool within, you know, our polyamorous community because I think so many of us didn't have the language for the struggles that we were experiencing, especially when it came to managing our jealousy. So I'll tell you, I'm somebody who definitely has like an avoidant attachment style. Me too. <laughs> yeah. So when there's conflict, when there's pressure, I just push away. I self-isolate and just kind of shut down. Um, my partner is somebody who tends to be a, a little bit more avoidant, although she definitely has like a more secure attachment style. Um, and the difficulty, again, is like talking about the difference between childhood attachment versus adult attachments. Like you can't grasp onto your partner in quite the same way um, mm -hmm. as an adult as you could as a child. And so understanding like, yes, I have an avoidant attachment style that tends to be where I gravitate. That's how I handle conflict. But as an adult in an adult relationship, I'm also expected to caretake for my partner. This uh, this is like reciprocal, right? Mm -hmm. Not just me attaching to her. She also gets to attach to me. Therefore, I have to overcome some of those um, behaviors in order to create security together and really cultivate it. Uh, so long story short, I think that the book Polysecure, especially the last chapters where she lays out that heart mm -hmm. um, framework about being here, you know, like creating rituals, turning towards each other with conflict, all of those things are really fantastic tools to just help us verbalize what dynamic already exists in the relationship. Because I think a lot of us kind of intrinsically know, like, ah, you know, when we're in conflict, you want to 
be here, you're always like needing attention and I run away, but it's hard to then know what to do. And like I said, since we're expected to both attach to each other, um, it can create a lot of, (laughs) I guess, messiness if you don't have the vocabulary to talk about it. Yeah. And I mean, I feel like one of the things that is so huge is having the vocabulary to talk about it and actually being able to like communicate about all these feelings and all those things. And I know you have like a cool workbook, I think it is about boundaries and communication. And I guess, is there just anything else you'd be like sharing about communication in poly relationships that you want people to know? Yeah. So um, I guess the goal for me with all of these resources, with the worksheets that we put out, with books like Polysecure, Ethical Slut, you know, all of the book lists that we have, is really giving people tools uh, to simplify their communication, right? Communicating with your partners is going to be difficult, it's going to be messy. As a peer support mentor, I just talk to people and see the messiness. Like there's not a way to just give a person like, here's a boundary worksheet. And now all of a sudden the issues that you have are simplified. (laughs) (laughs) The issues are still very complex. People's emotions are super complex. However, when you're in that moment of conflict, when you're in that moment of crisis, when you don't know what's happening, having to figure out what questions to ask each other and how to talk about it adds a whole other level of complexity. So mm-hmm. when I give people a workbook, I'm just laying out the conversation for them. They might still have really fundamental disagreements about you know, how they answer those questions, what they want, what they need, what they desire, but at least they're not fighting over what conversation they're even having. Because I know mm-hmm. Especially in the beginning, my partner and I would like try to talk about some of, you know, the issues relating to opening up and we just get sidetracked. You know, we would go down these really long, like tangent rabbit holes, get convoluted. And then at the end of like an hour of just talking, we'd be like, wait, we never addressed the first issue because we were talking about how to talk about the thing. And it- <laughs> You get in that just really frustrated mindset of like, how are we ever going to make polyamory work if talking about, you know, what our boundaries are is so complicated. I don't even know what boundaries I need. I don't know how to talk to my partner about it. So for us, when we're creating these um, worksheets and activity books, really the idea is just to simplify those conversations. Say, here you go. Here are the questions that you can um, ask each other. Here's the script answer them. Again, it's not going to solve all your problems, but at least you're not having to do extra work in trying to get each other to have the same conversation. So yeah, Yeah. that's the goal there. Yeah, that's so good. I feel like, so in my last relationship with my old partner who I was with for like four years, we were monogamous and we shifted to being poly and um, we ended up ending our relationship and I realized I'm gay and all this stuff happened. Um, But when I think about how terrible our communication was in opening up that relationship, I'm like, oh God, that was so bad. Like, I can't even believe how, yeah, I feel like little, uh, we were on the same page, but like both pretended we were on the same page a little bit or like just wanted to be on the same page. And so, yeah, there was just like so much not clear communication or boundaries that were happening. And um, yeah. and it is 
super complicated too because again like monogamy does give us such a well compulsory monogamy gives us such a neat and tidy script that a lot of us avoid the fact that we have super shit communication or like Mm -hmm. want completely different things and when all of those expectations are no longer on the table or you're having to redefine them you might end up realizing like oh wow I am completely incompatible with this person or I'm incompatible in the way that we wanted to be originally and that's very much what happened with me and my you know ex husband primary partner was very much the same thing of being like oh we love each other like I adore this person but also like we cannot be together <laughs> like we tried right. it doesn't work and it sounds like you went through a kind of similar experience <laughs> yeah yeah and that's really interesting for me like I'm still unpacking so much like about compulsory heterosexuality specifically in that relationship because I really thought I thought I was bisexual for a long time and I really thought that I (laughs) I know I'm like classic I thought I was bisexual and I could be a cis man wrong um but I realized like how much I confused safety and attachment and comfort and enjoying being desired and wanting to be loved for actually love and for being in love um and I'm still like pulling apart those threads a lot of like what you know what that really means for me and I feel sad about time that I lost feeling really confused about that and there's just like so much to it um yeah Yeah, that makes a lot of sense (laughs) yeah I resonate with that too and I think it is let me see I think when you're within queer community, the conversation is very, very different than when you're in like a dominant hegemony, right? Like when you're in the larger culture, mm-hmm. um, it can feel safe. It can feel okay when you have queer folks who are validating the fact that, you know, it's fine for you to have these attractions to people who share your gender like those are conversations that we're comfortable navigating but then like you said there's not that safety within the mainstream necessarily like it is difficult no matter how open-minded your family is like there's still a lack of lived experience and it's hard to just get on the same page um And so I think from that perspective, we can feel a tremendous amount of loss and a tremendous amount of like scarcity that if we're not grasping onto our queerness, (laughs) if we're not 100% sure about it, if we're questioning, then we're, you know, like doing something wrong because you find yourself in that middle ground between queer community that is very accepting sometimes. (laughs) Maybe. Sometimes. (laughs) Exactly. <laughs> but it's always that ambiguity, right? At the end of the day, that just like fucks up our minds a little bit. We're just like, who are we and what do we do with all of the complexity and the nuance? <laughs> yeah. And I think for me, it starts with like questioning one thing and then it's like, oh, I'm actually questioning everything. It's yeah. like not just queerness, it's also monogamy. It's also like all of these different things. And yeah, our society is like so built on these structures as like these are the foundations and this is good for everyone and I've just found that it's not good for me but there's also been a little bit of I don't know part of me is like um 
has been frustrated with myself or like, this should be good for you or this should be enough for you. This should be fine. Everyone else is fine. Why aren't you fine with that? Like, do you work with that at all or feel any of that like frustration or like even shame too? Yeah, for sure. Um, I'll just like segue a little bit in this conversation. So my, one of my ex-partners now, pal, whatever you want to call (laughs) ambiguous relationship at the moment, but um, they're going through this like huge gender exploration and transition. And throughout that, they've been relying on me for support. And so we started doing like this gender workbook together. And I went into it being like, oh, yeah, of course, I'm a cis woman. Like that makes a a bunch of sense. (laughs) I've never questioned this. So sure, I'll do the gender workbook with you. But I don't have any kind of experience of transness. And going through it, I was just like, wait. Sam, like, what? You dumb bitch. Like, you've transitioned, <laughs> obviously. Like, you changed your name, you've changed your pronouns, you've <laughs> your appearance, you don't identify with womanhood. What is happening? And it's that moment of, like, oh, yeah, when the world opens, it becomes so much harder to then close yourself back in. Mm-hmm. But it's really challenging to feel authentic in those experiences because we've been so blinded by them, right? Like people don't talk Mm -hmm. about their gender. If you're born or assigned a specific gender, you're kind of told like that's your only option. And so move forward in that direction. And that's very much what happens with monogamy. That's what happens with heterosexuality, with all these frameworks. You're just like, you know, here's the here's the answer. Now run with it. And when you expand those answers or give yourself other options, um, yeah, it just becomes a really big challenge to figure out who you are because you're going mm-hmm. script. Um, but I don't think that that's a bad thing. Right? I often look at the way that you know being so tied to these norms does reinforce these systems of domination and hierarchies that aren't conducive to everybody living like their fully authentic selves. And so for me, a lot of the work I do is just giving people the opportunity to expand their options, right? Instead of being like, is this a true or false choice? Mm-hmm. You can make it a fill in the blank kind of answer, right? Are, instead of asking like, are you male or female? You can be like, what are you as an open-ended mm-hmm. question? And I feel like those are way more valid and valuable um, insights rather than being mm-hmm. one or the other. I don't know yeah. what you has been like yeah I think that's beautiful that's so interesting how you're talking about gender too I feel like maybe I'm like at the beginning of that I was just talking with my partner the other day and I'm like hmm (laughs) hmm (laughs) I am feeling a little bit weird about womanhood and just other things too that we don't have to unpack here but it's like it really is that of like oh I'm starting to question one thing then like the whole house of cards falls (laughs) and but that is like that's hard but it's also a much more expansive place and I think everyone even if like you land back at monogamy or like you realize you're not that queer or whatever can really be still served and have their life be better too by questioning these things and like really opting in instead of having to you know opt out like we all have to now if we want to yeah no I really love what you're saying about 
that opting in, I think that's exactly what it is. Like just talking about the change of the relationship that I've been in, right? So going back to something that looks way more like monogamous than I've ever been in in a relationship really. it makes me recognize like, oh yeah, there are certain aspects that I do like and there are certain aspects that I don't like, but mm-hmm. I'm able to address the parts that I don't like because I've made a deliberate choice to practice in this way. When you are forced into a choice, you don't really get to nitpick what does work and what doesn't work. And you just kind of, um, I don't know, like pave over the complexity, I guess. Mm-hmm. Right? And I think for me, that's really been what all of these explorations have in common is like, we need to embrace the fact that there's not just a simple answer for everything, right? You're not just vanilla. You're not just (laughs) monogamous. You're not just straight. You're not just a woman. Like there are levels. Everyone experiences this completely differently. And instead of just trying to homogenize and put everyone into a quick and easy box, Um, being able to have these conversations that are deep and that are confusing at times and contradictory and all of it, I find that to be a lot more um, productive and also uplifts who we are as individual people. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And while we're talking about this, I think I'm curious about your relationship with labels and how yeah, how that comes up for you. Like, I think um, it's been interesting for me to think about that through the context of like my changing queer identity and how I'm identifying different ways than I used to and what feels good about that. But then it feels like also uncomfortable to be like, oh, I thought it was this thing, but actually everyone, no, it's a different thing. And yeah, so how are you feeling about labels? (laughs) It's really complicated for me. I think my experience of labels really oscillates based on where I am in my journey. Um, So for example, like in the beginning, when I was coming out, like I said, I did not use the word queer. I just assumed I was straight and also really like girls. (laughs) Um, (laughs) That's what I thought too at first. (laughs) I'm straight, but also I know I like girls. (laughs) And I think it's also important to keep in mind like the difference in era too like this was a decade ago I don't know when this happened for you but um you know that's when people were still like calling each other homos as an insult and so oh yeah when I was a kid too (laughs) there wasn't a whole lot of room for like a queer experience as part of like a valid identity um so it was only later that I started using the label bisexual Um, to describe myself and I think it was during that transition of having to explain to my cis male nesting partner like hey I'm gay that then the vocabulary and the label became really important because it was Mm -hmm. almost a way for me to give a name to what I was experiencing in a shortcut that didn't expand all of the nuances again like sometimes it just becomes overwhelming and that's the important thing to keep in mind is like while I love the complexity I think it's important sometimes we just need that shortcut to communicate to other people so in those situations I find that the labels are really helpful I think as I've become more 
myself and as I'm living a life that feels more authentic to me, they become less important, right? Then I don't feel like I'm having to talk to other folks quite as much about my experience or I'm able to present the complexity in a way that does feel digestible for them beyond the label, right? I don't just have to say like, hey, I'm a lesbian. I can talk about like the fact that, yes, I am generally attracted to this type of person, but also I expand my options based on the human because I see there's multiple ways of relating but again that's a bigger conversation to mm-hmm. have. and sometimes you just need that one quick like hey what are you and what are you interested in cool this is the word that I use to describe it um so I find yeah. kind of a similar thing with you know like talking about my relationships it's like I use polyam as kind of an overarching label for myself even though the type of relationship I practice, depending on the relationship and depending at what time changes, I consider myself to be kinky also, which again, depends on what kind of sexual practice I'm engaging in with different people. But overall, it just helps sort of like, hmm, I guess, identify what I'm generally attracted to. Um mm-hmm. And that's kind of the only point for me. I don't know. What are your labels and you? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I think my, so I'm, I feel confused a little bit about my labels right now. Gay feels good and queer feels good. And actually, I know people talk about like gender euphoria and I think the word lesbian gives me like sexuality euphoria and I like love that and that feels so good but then I'm also like well what does that mean to me because I'm a woman but I don't just love women I also love non-binary people and trans people and I think I identify as a lesbian in that I'm a not man who loves people who aren't cis men and is attracted to those people. And I'm like, but is that even what being a lesbian is? But maybe that is to me. And that word feels so good and like orange and fuzzy and warm. And I really love it. So I don't know. I think I have a little bit of lesbian imposter syndrome, maybe like something happening, (laughs) but yeah, I've been thinking about labels and it feels interesting as I'm, yeah, trying to unpack what feels good and even when I'm allowed to call myself, I think I felt that a little bit more a few months ago. Like what labels am I allowed to claim? Like, do I have to analyze like every relationship I've ever had to like find, see if there's a kernel of attraction to this man. And like, then I can't like call myself a lesbian. So I don't know. In summary, I don't know. (laughs) I think that's the lovely part of having like bigger umbrella terms, like queer Mm -hmm. to fall back for those moments where you feel a little bit more ambiguous right um it does kind of encapsulate the whole not cis heteronormative and like all of it (laughs) yeah um but yeah no I feel the same way and have the same questions about that term lesbian because you're right like there's a really lovely like historical connection that we have like I feel very connected to um the women who have come before us who forged the way who were there who you know stood up for a community who were visible who you know like had the audacity Mm -hmm. to give us the place where we're at now at the same time like within the lesbian community especially back in the day there has been and continues to be a lot of transphobia Mm -hmm. then 
in that space I feel like uncomfortable because it seems like claiming that label almost like buys into that transphobia but then it's like no because if my experience of gender is also queer then my experience of being a lesbian is also queer and then we're changing and evolving the narrative so then I feel Mm -hmm. good about um that label once again saying like it doesn't have to be binary um because I think that's where we're at in the conversation uh but yeah it is hard because again like I think this is where I get very like giggly about the fact that you know sometimes I look across at like my surrounding straight neighbors and I think oh they never have to have these conversations (laughs) right we have to be so thoughtful and careful and sometimes we overanalyze analyze it all where you're like this is a general pattern of attraction like who cares if you occasionally sleep with a person of course you're allowed to doesn't want to you know like just picking one flavor of ice cream (laughs) if we're gonna go with that analogy is ridiculous I don't know about you but I'm the like all flavors (laughs) at least I'll try it once kind of (laughs) yeah one flavor is boring (laughs) yeah I love that (laughs) this is also as you're mentioning like kink is making me want to ask you about healing through kink I think as I'm like starting to play with that more, I'm feeling how interesting and healing it is. And I felt that way about like sexual fantasy for a long time. But as I'm like actually bringing it into physical life, it feels that way too. And and that feels really expansive. So I'm curious about your thoughts about that. Um, so I think the entry point for me in kink was more around like sensory like I told you I experienced like sexual assault really young um well pretty young and it just kind of like fucked up the way that I was able to relate to my body for a long time and so getting back to a place where I understood like what pleasure meant had to be very divorced from like cis heteronormative sex scripts right and so I sort of like started expanding oh I love the fact that like my skin has a lot of nerves and there's a bunch Mm -hmm. of ways for me to interact with my body that does feel like a completely different experience than this traumatic situation that happened right and so that was sort of like the entrance and I know that a lot of people don't necessarily think of sensory play as kink but really it is you know anything that goes beyond the sort of what we consider to be vanilla and within that I found like oh erotic pain really really like appeals to me it's something that I didn't know that I could do and again like I know people have a lot of very touchy and different kind of experiences so I will give a content warning to this but like I do have a background with self-harm and I think when I was younger I was doing that like out of a sort of like damaging, self-loathing, hateful place of like feeling out of control and realizing like ah, I can take the 
pain that I enjoy, but turn it into an experience that does feel pleasurable. And that feels like a reclamation where I'm doing this consciously, deliberately, in order to bring myself happiness and fulfillment, where I'm feeling like myself in my body, rather than as a way to dissociate from the experiences that I didn't want to be having. That was like a huge shift in perspective saying like, ah, as part of my masturbation routine, I can spank myself. I can feel really mm. great. I can be part of something that I do. I can bring the pain that I enjoy, but I'm going to refrain from like cutting, which is something that I used to do when I was younger, because that mm. does not feel like a healthy experience of pain. It feels like something that I'm doing out of destructive habits. And so it was a little bit of just like being able to have that self-awareness and say like, what is my intention and what am I trying to feel when I am doing these types of practices? Later on, um, I really started playing with power dynamics and power exchanges. Mm. And that becomes super fun too. Like, I love I, that. <laughs> yeah, I love sort of like being bratty. I think that's something that I really enjoy. And I find that that gives me like an outlet to channel some of that energy. Um, but again, like in a constructive way that makes me feel good after the fact. So I'm not left feeling like shit. And it's also very boundaried. And that's the important part to understand with all of this when we're talking about kink, either from a like healing place or just even from a pleasure place, is that you have to do it within certain confined agreements. Um, and I think that's what sort of like differentiates, at least for me, self-harm versus erotic pain is like mm -hmm. I'm giving myself the permission to do these things, but within context right like if I'm starting to do it without um the sort of like aftercare because I think there needs to be aftercare too even if you're doing solo um then I'm no longer doing this deliberately then this is violating my boundaries this is violating what I want from this practice. does that make sense I'm curious what your thoughts are too <laughs> Yeah, that totally makes sense and I love the idea or not the idea but I love that you can like make masturbating kinky too as you're saying that I'm like oh my god my masturbating is so boring I don't do anything <laughs> boring you know it's <laughs> often routines and this is a thing I do with folks too it's like most people start masturbating you know pretty young and keep doing that throughout their life like they don't necessarily see that as a way to evolve as they age um, so yeah, bring in new <laughs> new things, start with yeah. plants and go from there. <laughs> I love that. I've even, this is so funny because it's so not even a big deal, but I've started sometimes like flipping onto my stomach to masturbate and I really enjoy that when I have sex and I don't know I just like it feels so good um but I almost never do that when I have sex with myself and so I've just been like oh let me just like do that and give that to myself and that feels really good and is so different from how I started masturbating when I was like 10 years old and have continued to masturbate my whole life <laughs> and it's so funny like I was talking to um, my two partners, you know, one of them aspires to have top energy. The other one has very top energy and talking to them about how they masturbate. Yeah. My partner was like, of course, I only do it on my front. Cause like, that's the way that I like to fuck people. And I was like, of course, <laughs> that makes so much sense. <laughs> my other partner was like, 
yeah, why am I putting myself in this position that feels super triggering and like induces gender dysphoria when I could be, you know, masturbating on my front in a way that feels more like safe or powerful or whatever, you know, they associate with that position. So I love that you're also <laughs> right it's like so simple I probably also have aspiring top energy which I don't have literally at all at all <laughs> but I want to <laughs> I also feel like I am really working out some some because there's a lot but of my issues with my dad through kink and through like power stuff and that feels really helpful even like yeah thinking about like other things that I want to do around that that I think would also feel supportive but also feels really intense so like yeah the aftercare like you were talking about that feels um so important yeah (laughs) Do you want to hear a random side story talking about dads? <laughs> yeah, I would love to. So my partner's dad was recently in town and he's a pastor. <laughs> and <laughs> for whatever reason, we ended up on the topic of consensual kink. Um, he was asking me what I say to people who he considers to be sexual deviants. So I had to explain oh. to him that deviancy is sort of... Uh, you know, normative way of viewing behavior that falls, you know, <laughs> outside of what is quote unquote socially acceptable. Mm-hmm. Anyways, we got into talking about like the difference between pedophilia, which is super wrong because people cannot consent yeah. versus age play, which is, you know, play between consenting adults who are acting as, you know, like younger versions or older versions of themselves. And Anyways, I ended up explaining to him diaper play as <laughs> or as a part of um, age play. So I had this funny moment of like sitting in the car with my partner, my pastor-in-law, talking about diaper play. I was like, "Wow, I need to put a foot in my mouth." Like, <laughs> I don't know what is happening, but. My point of bringing this up in the conversation is that there are so many, so many, so many ways to engage in kink, right? Like you can mm-hmm. go into diaper play if you want to, or you cannot. Like you can also just watch Disney movies and have somebody pretend to, you know, like nurture you and have that like little big sort of dynamic, which can feel really healing. And as happening in a very non-sexual context and so Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people they just assume that like if you're addressing some of those perhaps like difficult memories from your childhood it's going to have to be like really intense hardcore like incestuous kind of play and it doesn't necessarily have to be that way unless that's what you want right like I think Mm -hmm. there is a lot of healing a lot of reclaiming to be had in just like being able to set up a dynamic where you have a caretaker, where you have somebody who's able to, you know, like hug you and nurture you the way that you wish your parents had. Um, yeah. So yeah, I guess my my point is kink is so expansive and you get to sort of <laughs> what aspects appeal to you and you don't have to talk to your father-in-law about it. <laughs> your pastor-in-law. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, (laughs) I know we're coming close to the end of our conversation, but I wanted to ask you just a little bit about pleasure and maybe like 
how you orient towards pleasure in your life? Yeah. Um, weed. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, yeah, no, like I very much get the winter blues, you know, especially living in Portland where like it just rains all the time. And so there's moments in my life where pleasure seems really inaccessible, like in my sober, just living state, I just, my brain chemistry does not want to cooperate with me and it makes me feel really bummed out. And so being able to have, you know, these tools that really help me find that joy in life, then it gives me the permission to go and seek pleasure and prioritize it. So Mm -hmm. sometimes there are moments where I'm just like, ah, okay, I'm feeling like garbage, but I know for a fact that I have this like lovely strawberry cough on (laughs) on the shelf. I'm just going to take a hit or two, mellow myself out, and then I can be a lot more present in my body. Um, My mind is kind of like less buzzy and this happens a lot with sex too right where there are moments where it just feels like inaccessible to connect with my partner because I'm you know running through grocery lists or like there's just chatter up in my head that I don't want to shut out and so being able to use like a substance again really deliberately with the intention that I'm going to be able to take this time to reclaim space for myself um, definitely helps with all of that (laughs) yeah 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 I love weed for that too I don't smoke a lot um but whenever I do I really feel that so much about I love like it's such a sensory experience for me and like heightened sensory experience and that feels just like so fun and so good um and it's also like a really present experience usually too which like what you were saying about like the buzzing in the head and all of that like dropping into like presence so helpful so good (laughs) yeah and it's one of the things where I've been like really um redefining and expanding what my weed routine looks like so I've been growing a bunch of like flowers and herbs and drying Mm -hmm. them so that I can add them to my vape or roll them into slips and just like having that lovely experience of being like oh my god the lavender that's enhancing this experience and having taken the time to actually like go through the process of growing it drying it rolling it all of a sudden it's like really bringing that pleasure kind of full circle, right? Like I'm doing the gardening that makes me feel more like present and at home in my body and all of that. And just making sure that it is kind of like a fully, I don't know how to say this, like holistic experience. Mm -hmm. Um, And yeah, then it helps with, you know, the cooking and finding pleasure so that I'm not just eating food and it helps with, having sex and making sure that I'm not just fucking just because it's Saturday or whatever, but you know, like actually <laughs> that I find is yeah. enjoyable and pushing past the boundaries of what, you know, I internalize is like, yeah, what I should be doing <laughs> versus mm. what I should be doing. <laughs> yeah. What this conversation is all about, what you should be doing versus what you want to be doing. <laughs> Um, I want to ask you the last question I always ask on this show, 
First, I have to tell you because I feel like you'll appreciate this. So the name of the podcast is Living Open. And people would sometimes ask me, like, I've been doing the podcast for five years. So it's been a long time. And like a couple of years ago, people would sometimes think it was a podcast about polyamory because of the name. And I was like, oh, that's funny. That makes sense. But no, it's not like really about that. But now I'm like poly. So <laughs> it's still not about that only, but <laughs> just funny. <laughs> I like came into the name of the podcast in a different way. But the last question that I always ask on this show is, what does living open mean to you? What comes up for you when you hear that? Yeah. Um, so living open for me is a little bit about authenticity, right? So sort of what we've been discussing throughout our conversation of mm-hmm. saying, like, there are lots of restrictions that are placed on us, especially when we're children and we grow up with those expectations and opening up our minds to discovering, like, what feels more authentic for ourselves. So things that were assumed for us doesn't necessarily mean that they are us. Mm-hmm. Um, and having the open mindedness to just be able to say, like, oh, you get to choose. <laughs> like, and yeah. they're not like conscious choices like you don't choose to be gay necessarily but you choose to live as a gay person and that is about the open-mindedness and yeah like giving yourself the priority to live authentically and then I would also add as I'm rambling like this giving other people the ability to also be open and also live openly, right? Because like you Mm -hmm. can choose to live authentically for yourself, but you also need to respect what that authenticity looks like within others, even if it's different from you. Yes. Sam, can you tell everyone where people can find you and how they can, you know, connect with you, work with you? So you used to be able to find me on Instagram at (laughs) Um, however I've been shadow banned for a year now Mm. (laughs) they can only kind of find me on Instagram so instead go to Patreon (laughs) patreon.com slash shrimp teeth you can also find my website there shrimpteeth.com so that's probably the better way of going about doing that and yeah slide into my DMs if you need peer support I do one-on-one and also couples um mentoring so yeah that's kind of my my little spiel my little stuff (laughs) amazing thank you so much for being here it's so fun to talk to you thank you for inviting me i love this conversation Thank you so much for listening. If you loved this episode, please do tap five stars and leave us a nice review on whatever podcast platform you're listening on. I appreciate it so, so much. And it's a really lovely way to be in exchange with the show, with an indie podcast. You can check out all the links mentioned in this episode in the description, and I'll be back on Monday with another episode. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss it and stay in touch on Instagram at E-R-Y-N-J underscore or Patreon until then.